Hello, my name is Paul Barclay. I'm the host of Big Ideas on RN and on behalf of the ABC Chairman and the Board and ABC Brisbane, it's my great privilege to welcome you to the opening presentation of the 53rd Boyer Lectures. May I extend a special welcome to our 2012 lecturer, Professor Marcia Langton. In recent years, it's been the custom to begin the Boyer Lectures with a public presentation of the first lecture and this is the first time the opening event has been held in Brisbane. It is also great to be able to welcome you here to the new ABC Centre at Southbank and in particular to this brand new auditorium. Today's lecture is the first official event ever to be held in this venue and we're thrilled that our first event is such a prestigious event for the ABC as the Boyer Lectures. So thank you for coming and sharing this landmark occasion. We're going to begin proceedings with a welcome to country and it's my honour to invite Auntie Carol Curry, a South East Queensland elder, to come and offer that right now. Jinjara Balawala means greetings to many. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge our past elders. Respect to our present elders, as they hold the knowledge, the wisdom, and the stories to share. And Yilang Nahabala tribe. My skin, it belongs to two tribes. The Malanjali clan, Toten the eagle, and Yubayong, my father. The Poonabar, Toten the Porcupine, and Yuwayang, my mother. My grandfather, a Jaguar man, was born at Laidley, 1871. I speak the ancient Yugambe language from the eight groups of the Yugambe region of southeast Queensland. It is always our custom and culture when we walk and gather to acknowledge and show respect to the Turrbal people across the river and the Jaguar, this side of the river, who lived and took care of this part of Mother Earth for many, many thousands of years. Aboriginal culture, it is the oldest living culture in the world. And our people, we give praise to our Creator, who placed our ancestors in this beautiful land which was named Australia, gave them their culture. That culture, it has been taught, handed down from generation to generation for over 60,000 years. In our spiritual ceremonies, our art, music, dancing and dreamtime stories. Aboriginal history is the only history that grows both ways back in the past and forward to the present. I'll go now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Auntie Carol Curry. Each year since 1959, the ABC has invited a prominent Australian to deliver a series of lectures, ideas, arguments and insights on the significant issues of our time. 
They began as the ABC lectures and since 1961 they've taken the name of Richard Boyer, later Sir Richard, the ABC board chairman who had first proposed the lectures. Many of our nation's most creative, informed and adventurous thinkers have occupied the Boyer lecture podium and with their wide dissemination through broadcast on ABC radio and publication in book form, over the years these lectures have made an unparalleled contribution to Australia's intellectual and cultural life. This year it is an honour to have as our 53rd Boyer lecturer one of Australia's most distinguished and influential Indigenous academics and activists, Professor Marcia Langton AM. Originally from Brisbane, Professor Langton is an anthropologist and geographer with a doctorate in Indigenous relationships with place. She has a particular interest in land tenure and environmental management, agreement making and treaties, especially in the Northern Territory and Cape York Peninsula. She has made a significant contribution to government and non-government policy, as well as to Indigenous studies at three universities. In 1993, Professor Langton was made a member of the Order of Australia for her work in anthropology and advocacy of Aboriginal rights. In 2002, she won the inaugural Neville Bonner Award for Indigenous Teacher of the Year. She became the Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne in 2000. Her theme for the Boyer Lectures is indeed timely. The Quiet Revolution, Indigenous People and the Resources Boom. In her five lectures, Professor Langton will examine the economic empowerment of Aboriginal Australia. Among the issues being canvassed are the new economic paradigm of an Aboriginal middle class in Australia. The opportunities and risks presented to Indigenous communities by the resources boom and the public policy implications in such areas as native title legislation. With Indigenous issues a vital theme in national affairs and the importance of the resources sector to the Australian economy, this year's lectures promise to be challenging, provocative and relevant as she comes forward to deliver her opening presentation of the 2012 Boyer Lectures, would you please welcome Professor Marcia Langton. Um, Mr James Spiegelman, members of the ABC board, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want to thank Auntie Carol, and uh, acknowledge the Jagara and Turrbal people, who are the traditional owners uh, of this area, um, quite a large area in fact, um, and my very best wishes to all the elders. The emergence of an Aboriginal middle class in Australia in the last two to three decades has gone largely unnoticed. While the numbers remain small, this change heralds an economic future for Aboriginal people unimaginable 50 years ago. When W.E.H. Stanner delivered the Boyer Lectures in 1968, after the dreaming, black and white Australians and anthropologists' view, he gave credence, perhaps inadvertently, to the widely held assumption at that time 
that Aboriginal life was incompatible with modern economic life. Today, the expectation is quite the reverse. The policies of federal governments for the last decade have implied and increasingly made explicit the expectation that educational achievement and employability will be the key outcomes of spending in Indigenous affairs portfolios. This is a view generally shared by most ordinary Australians. But on the left, and among those opinion leaders who hang on to the idea of the new noble savage, the Aboriginal poverty is invisible, masked by their wilderness ideology. They describe the Aboriginal situation through a romantic lens. Their unspoken expectation is that no Aboriginal group should become engaged in any economic development. I will return to these matters of Aboriginal poverty, welfare dependency and the wilderness campaigns against economic development in the next lecture. By the late 1980s, Indigenous policy and much public commentary in Australia was based on a paradigm which saw Aboriginal people as victims of a brutal colonial legacy, as residents of remote regions where they strove to maintain the vestiges of a traditional way of life, an endeavour in which they needed the support of government through income assistance schemes and other policies that would help them to stay on their traditional lands. Over the following two decades, this paradigm came under increasing attack. Led by Noel Pearson, amongst others, on the grounds that it fundamentally misunderstood the nature of contemporary Aboriginal life in Australia, the problems facing Aboriginal people and appropriate policy responses. Indigenous people came to be treated not just as different, but exceptional and inherently incapable of joining the Australian polity and society. The history of legislation and policy applied to Indigenous people demonstrates this in a number of ways not citizens until after the 1967 referendum, the shameful effects of the nearly half century old Community Development Employment Program, a work for the Dole scheme, entrenchment of Aboriginal people in welfare dependency and the Northern Territory Emergency Intervention. All these exceptionalist initiatives have isolated the Aboriginal world from Australian economic and social life. The Mabo case, the Native Title Act and engagement with the mining industry have changed the assumptions of that paradigm and catapulted Aboriginal people engaged in the mining industry into the mainstream economy. I have worked at mine sites and witnessed this extraordinary change. The Argyle Diamond Mine is the world's largest producer of diamonds. It sits atop and eastwards of a dr dramatic red mountain range to the southwest of the Ord River Dam in the East Kimberley region of Western Australia. I have often approached it from the southwest, driving back from the Warraman Aboriginal community. The mine pit breaks the horizon with a sharp V cut into the ridgeline. The old Aboriginal women who know the story and care about this place with a vigilant regard for even the mine itself Look at it and think of the ever-present Barramundi woman, Diwal, just below the haul trucks circling down the huge excavation. When I first went to the East Kimberley in 1980, I was deeply shocked at the poverty and racism that seemed then to be the unalterable fate of the Aboriginal people living in Kununurra, Warman, or Turkey Creek as it was known then, and the stock camps. Cruel, hard white men ruled the region 
and their behaviour towards Aboriginal people in the townships was malevolent, random and without cause. Still today, for most Aboriginal people there, life is hard, very hard. My first visit to the Argyle diamond mine was in early 2000, when Rio Tinto Limited was moving towards buying out the other shareholders. At that time, there were four Aboriginal employees. Two of them were gardeners. Two years later, there were many more. Among the people who made this change, giving jobs to local Aboriginal people, was the mine manager, Brendan Hammond, recently arrived from Namibia and originally from the former Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Like other Southern Africans, he had lived through the dismantling of apartheid and the independence movement in his own country, as well as Namibia and Angola. He told me he was shocked at the racism in Australia and that what he was dealing with in the vicinity of the mine was worse than anything he had encountered at home. The new Rio Tinto policy framework for engaging with Aboriginal people with respect for their rights gave him an extraordinary opportunity. He gave a direct order to the community relations staff to ensure that more Aboriginal people were employed. I attended a meeting with the staff of the mine in 2001 when discussions had commenced in earnest to identify jobs for Aboriginal people. With an undertone of aggression, a man said, we can't employ Aboriginal people because they have got problems with alcohol and they all have police records. This is a high security site, it wouldn't work. Some shuffled subtly in their chairs and must have felt embarrassed. Those who knew of the instruction from the manager must have been wondering how indeed would this work. I said, the best thing to do would be to employ Aboriginal women. They don't have problems with alcohol or the police. The response was a thick silence. But one man, the late Fred Murray, had a twinkle in his eye. When I next visited the mine, he made a great fuss about meeting me at the security gate. The security team was a group of tough local Aboriginal women and Fred's face beamed with pride. Later, I learnt that they had busted the local police, leaving the mine site for a weekend in Kununurra. They were caught with company bed linen in the boot of their police vehicle. <laughs> Brendan Hammond became a champion for the Aboriginal people of the East Kimberley. He revolutionised the culture of the Argyle Diamond Mine by opening the doors to Aboriginal people. Today, the rate of Aboriginal employment at that mine stands at 25% of the total workforce. This remarkable change in the employment of Aboriginal people on mining projects accelerated throughout the first decade of this century. But is it threatened by the downturn in the mining sector, dependent as it is on China's demand for Australian resources? In this lecture, I want to examine some of the significant changes in the Aboriginal world, changes due in some part to the mining industry. This story of the Aboriginal part in Australia's economic history begins in the protection era and ends with the collision of the Aboriginal remote world, the mining boom and incoherent government policies on Aboriginal economic development. Mining offers many Indigenous populations a significant source of employment and contracting opportunities as an alternative to the welfare transfers upon which many remote and regional Aboriginal communities depend. We have a responsibility to ensure 
that what happens next is not a social and economic disaster for Aboriginal people. High costs, rising commodity prices and the economic downturn in China are the main factors that have slowed the mining boom of the last decade that has earned great wealth for Australia and instigated economic opportunities for Aboriginal entrepreneurs and workers. We need to understand the forces at work, the factors, historical and economic, that have produced the present situation. We forget how recently Aboriginal people began to join the economy, moving from indentured and unfree labour status to full economic participation. In the 1960s, laws changed. The 1967 referendum on constitutional inclusion of Aboriginal people moved the policy momentum along, capturing the spirit of most Australians that demanded equal treatment and a fair go. Aboriginal people themselves began to migrate from reserves, rural towns and fringe camps to the cities. Aboriginal people entered the cash economy in greater numbers and more rapidly than ever before. In increasing numbers, Aboriginal people for the first time enjoyed the political and economic fruits of Australian citizenship, the social welfare safety net, some aspects of economic development, political representation, support for language and culture, and government policy and funding to improve outcomes in health, education and sports. In the last decade, the private sector especially the resource extraction industries, have set bold Indigenous employment targets and to meet them provided on-the-job training, contracting and procurement practices to ensure that Aboriginal people and their enterprises succeed. There are hundreds of Aboriginal businesses and even more Aboriginal not-for-profit corporations with income streams, delivering economic outcomes to their communities on an unprecedented scale. In these lectures, I will examine the underbelly of the resources boom and the standing of the Indigenous population in the Australian economy, especially those who live in Northern Australia and the remote regions, which are the geographic heart of this activity. Mining is the only significant industry in remote communities and dependence on it may leave these communities in a precarious position when an operation closes. High levels of dependency on mining can be detrimental for Indigenous and rural and regional communities, so development aimed at increasing economic diversity is needed. Now there is talk that the resources boom has peaked. How vulnerable to the mining downturn are these Aboriginal businesses? In the last decade, mining companies and ancillary services have employed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in larger numbers than ever before in Australian history. Some mining companies, for example, Rio Tinto Limited, Fortescue Metals Group and BHP Billiton, have developed recruitment and other labour force strategies in the last few years that have contributed to creating the largest Australian indu Indigenous industrial workforce ever. Mid-last year, in the Pilbara alone, Rio Tinto Iron Ore had over 1,000 Indigenous employees and Fortescue Metals Group more than 300. As proportions of the total workforce in both these companies, about 8% of the employees are Indigenous. Nationally, Rio Tinto had about 1,500 Indigenous employees and is the largest private sector employer of Indigenous people. 
These and other companies, such as Woodside Energy, are also offering Indigenous entrepreneurs unprecedented opportunities to tender for contracts. Rio Tinto Iron Ore Limited and Fortescue awarded each more than $300 million last financial year to Indigenous contracting companies in the Pilbara. Last year, it was estimated that there were 52 contracting companies owned by Indigenous businesses or in joint ventures with Indigenous companies in the Pilbara alone. These companies are also employing Indigenous people at an unprecedented rate. Yet, continuing high levels of disadvantage remain, even among Indigenous populations located near resource projects. It is vital that we understand constraints on Indigenous economic participation. Many of Australia's largest mines are in very remote areas, with substantial Indigenous populations living nearby and are often on Indigenous land. Once a battleground between Aboriginal people fighting for basic rights and ruthless mining corporations unfettered by legislation to protect local people or the environment, an accord has been reached in many areas where native title rights have provided the leverage for negotiated settlements. Historically, the mining sector had a poor record of Indigenous employment, and this led to the mistaken assumptions that Indigenous people were not interested in working in the mining industry and unable to acquire the skills to do so. Earlier this year, with Matthew Gray of the Australian National University, I addressed the question, what has changed? We found that there were three factors which made this mining boom different. And for the first time, opened up the possibility of economic benefits flowing to local people who live near the sites of these mines. First, the current mining boom is very large. According to Treasury, in 2010, about 27,000 jobs were created in the mining industry. It looks like the boom will continue for a number of years. Mines now being developed will create many more jobs and their economic benefits will flow on to regional centres. Second, the boom has taken place during a period of very strong growth in the whole economy. The resulting tight labour market has meant that mining companies have had trouble, in fi trouble finding employees. Many Australians don't want to work in the very remote areas of Australia, and many who do are working on a fly-in, fly-out basis. Third, mining companies are increasingly seeing Indigenous employment as an important part of agreements to mine on Indigenous land. It maintains the company's social licence to operate. Companies with many Indigenous employees have often made significant investments in recruiting and training them. Rio Tinto Iron Ore has provided literacy and numeracy programs, family and community support programs, and mentoring of Indigenous employees. Many other companies have copied these practices. These have all been critical to Indigenous employment. Until recently, Fortescue Metals Group guaranteed employment and home ownership to members of the traditional owner groups that have signed land access agreements and completed training courses provided by its Vocational Training Education Centre. Companies have often increased cultural awareness within their workplaces and reduced discrimination. While these programs involve costs to mining companies, the companies have found that the business case stacks up. 
Outside the mining industry, more Indigenous people have also been finding work in the economy as a whole. The health sector is a major employer of Indigenous people. The recent increases in Indigenous employment in the mining industry have occurred in the context of substantial increases in Indigenous employment since the, the mid-1990s. Between 1994 and 2008, Indigenous employment increased from about 30% of Indigenous people of working age to about half that population set in the national workforce. Much of this growth was in the private sector. A number of factors have contributed to increased Indigenous employment since the early 1990s recession. Key ones include the strong macro economy, which has created many new jobs, and the combined efforts of government, community organisations and the private sector to increase the skill level and employability of Indigenous Australians. The mining industry has created opportunities to make enduring inroads into the gap in employment rates between Indigenous and other Australians. It has established a model for expanding these opportunities across Australian society. Achieving this will require significant investment and commitments from both the private sector and governments. This will be crucial to the economic success and social stability of Australia in the Asian century. Maintaining the gains and the momentum of change brought by the resources boom could be transformative. The demographic profile of regional and remote Aboriginal populations is overwhelmingly young. Their future depends on their inclusion in the economy through education and work. The young age profile of the national Indigenous population Approximately 58% of the Indigenous population are under the age of 25. Means that there are large numbers of young people who will be reaching working age over the next decade. Australia cannot afford for this group of young people to be excluded from the benefits of paid employment as many of their parents were. For the first time, there are large numbers of good, well-paying jobs to be had in remote Australia. Yet, the responsibility for encouraging and funding education, health services, housing and other basic infrastructure lies with state and territory governments, which have historically neglected and continue to neglect the citizens of remote Australia, especially Aboriginal peoples. As John Taylor and Ben Scambry have reminded us, despite unprecedented labour demand, the capacity of local Indigenous people to benefit remains substantially constrained by their limited human capital. As Australia's resource, resources boom has waxed and waned, its effects on Indigenous people have been mixed. Scores of mines were commenced or expanded in the last decade, but in the last year with the economic downturn in China, a few major expansions and projects have been delayed or closed such as at Olympic Dam. Are we now in danger of losing the economic gains of the Aboriginal sector of the population, many driven, as we can see, by the private sector of the last 50 years? These questions loom large as governments and the finance sector come to terms rather late in the piece with the needs of the new Indigenous entrepreneurs. 
The government policy settings have been frozen for a long time in the apologetic 1970s view of the Aboriginal world. Now, almost 50 years after the first wave of policy reform, the stasis in Indigenous policy threatens the fragile achievements of the Aboriginal workers and business people by locking Aboriginal people out of the economy with policies that provide few incentives for participation and many disincentives. It is difficult to see how the federal policy on Indigenous economic development is of any help at all in overcoming welfare dependency. Government policies, media reportage and public attitudes have barely registered the extraordinary changes of the Aboriginal world of the last half century. First, the demographic and regional change in Aboriginal Australia in that period is remarkable. There is a growing difference between the Indigenous population of the South and that of the North. By 2040, half the population of Northern Australia will be Indigenous. In the South, it will remain at about 2 or 3 per cent. In 2012, Indigenous people own 82 per cent of Northern Australia in a variety of titles, pastoral leases, freehold, special leases, native title determinations and special Aboriginal freeholds, which include reserves converted to trust arrangement and areas returned following successful land claims. Aboriginal pastoral properties are the second largest type of land holding in the Aboriginal domain. The economic interests of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in North Australia are closely aligned. Mining, cattle and tourism are the industries that fuel the Northern economy. In the South, the predominant issues raised in the media and public domain by Aboriginal advocates concern human rights, reconciliation and self-determination. Practical issues, education, employment and health take second place. In the North, the predominant issues raised by Aboriginal advocate concern land acquisition, industry and commerce, education, training, employment and health issues. The rapid, if dispersed, industrialisation of remote Australia is changing the traditional balance of power between the cities and the bush. It is likely that the people of the outback will be less the stubborn, deprived victims of Pauline Hanson's imagination and more the avant-garde of a wealthier, remote area workforce. The shift of infrastructure from the east coast to the remote inland and west is striking. Our old and new mining towns are absurd contrasts of the primitive and modern. By 1967, the mining industry has built 26 towns 12 ports and additional bulk handling infrastructure at many existing ports, 25 airfields and over 2,000 kilometres of railway line. Australians mostly live in cities far away from the mining provinces. They are also largely unaware of the great wealth they generate or the nature of 21st century industrial mining, the automation, giant machinery and capital intense way that minerals are now extracted from the ground. An economic and cultural shift is happening in the inland, and it is barely sensed in the big cities. How will our ways of life change as skilled workers are imported to cope with the domestic shortages? As the baby boomer generation retires, how will our cultures change? What will be urban Australia's response to the Aboriginal North? These are the questions I have asked standing at a mine pit in remote Australia, peering over the edge.
It seems that the mining and allied metal industries are constantly the battleground of public dramas. Indeed, this has been so since colonial times. In 1963, Geoffrey Blaney named one of his most popular books, The Rush That Never Ended, in, in, in which he reinterpreted the Eureka Rebellion. The Goldfield societies were the cauldron in which modern Australia brewed. It was gold that brought people to Australia and paid for banks and towns to be built. The lust for gold was responsible for an extraordinary population growth. The Ophir Gold Rush was only the second major gold rush in the world after California and attracted prospectors from all over the globe to the central west of New South Wales. Ballarat, Bendigo, Bathurst and a few other towns survived the gold rushes as thriving rural towns, but most did not. Many, such as Cooktown in Cape York or Pine Creek in the Northern Territory, are quiet backwaters. There are ghost towns scattered across the country. Mostly, though, the small outback towns are Aboriginal communities, as generation after generation from the old white families move to the cities. The demographic of the remote inland is becoming a majority Aboriginal world, broken up by islands of mine workers and a few service towns. After World War II, geologists and others, such as Lang Hancock, discovered a series of gargantuan ore bodies. These discoveries, iron ore in the Pilbara, bauxite in Cape York and Arnhem Land, for instance, heralded two developments in Australia. A vast expansion of industrial-scale mining by corporations and conflict with local Aboriginal groups. Whereas gold mining in the 19th century had been largely artisanal, with diggers pitching their tents in the anarchy of the early goldfields, a different scale of mining, such as at Broken Hill, starting in the 1880s and at Mount Isa from the 1920s, represented the beginnings of the corporate mining industry that is driving the resources sector today. In the 19th century, and for much of the 20th century, mine operators and governments paid little regard to the detrimental impact of mining operations on neighbouring Indigenous people. Indeed, governments often removed Aboriginal people from the areas of mining operations to allow their unimpeded establishment and continuing operations. In 1963, this began to change with a campaign against a mining company that joined Aboriginal people with churches, unions and international groups to protest at the treatment of Aboriginal people. The Queensland Police burnt down the houses and church of the Aboriginal co community living at the Mapoon Mission and forcibly relocated the residents to New Mapoon. It was clear that the government's intention was to remove the community to allow the unimpeded development of the bauxite mine at Weeper. In the Northern Territory, in northeast Arnhem Land, a bauxite mining operation was imposed on the Yungu people, who litigated and resisted for another 40 years. These events had lasting implications for relations between the Indigenous people and the mining industry. Several Aboriginal land councils were formed to present, prevent such occurrences and to obtain recognition of their rights to their traditional land, including the North Queensland Land Council in 1977 and the Cape York Land Council in 1990. Only an official apology by the Premier of Queensland 
and the successful negotiation of the Camalco Western Cape York Communities Coexistence Agreement with the WIC and other peoples in 2001 has overcome the legacy of the police operation at Mapoon in 1963. But this is to anticipate the advent of the recognition of native title. Conflicts with Aboriginal people exploded in the 1980s. Events in the Kimberley in 1980 at Nunkanbar also pitted the mining industry against Aboriginal people seeking to protect a sacred site when the Western Australian Government ordered the drilling of the site by AMAX Proprietary Limited to pursue mineral exploration objectives. In 1978, elders and traditional owners established the Kimberley Land Council to obtain recognition of their rights to their traditional land and to prevent mining companies from proceeding without their approval. Again, an international campaign protesting the desecration of Aboriginal sacred sites damaged the reputation of the mining industry. There were other similar events during the mining boom of the 1960s and 1970s. The standing of the industry changed with the damage to its reputation. Whereas there had been few questions about the way the industry operated and governments had encouraged the opening of new mining operations and exploration because of its contribution to economic growth, concerns were raised that caught the public imagination throughout the world as protests were delivered to national and international forums. A view of the mining industry emerged among its critics that forced the industry to rethink its relationships with Australian Indigenous people. The rights of Indigenous people, cultural heritage, environmental management and the reputation of Australia as a first world nation with a fourth, fourth world underclass suffering at the hands of the mining industry, all of these issues troubled those Australians who wanted a better deal for Indigenous people. Some in the mining industry and in government were sceptical about the purpose of what they saw as the politics of embarrassment, yet the incentives for the mining industry to build and maintain distinctive internal capabilities, such as the ability to handle and resolve social issues to maintain their mandate, grew, and this involved reconsidering their relationships with Indigenous people. In the 1960s and 1970s, an earlier small, smaller mining boom and recognition of Aboriginal rights to land in the Northern Territory coincided. Lobbyists in the mining industry held that Aboriginal responses to the many proposals for exploration and mining were unreasonable because they were different from the conventional arrangements with landowners and others impacted by the industry. The industry bodies of the day also insisted that Aboriginal objections to the rapid encroachment of mining operations into their domain was holding back economic development in Australia with the result that Aboriginal people were demonised in the industry. Gloomy investor forecasts contributed to the hateful attitudes towards Indigenous people. Some feared that a future of open-ended land claims by Aboriginal people would limit the expansion of the exploration and mining industry and that the new land rights legislated for Aboriginal people would lead to unsustainable legal and financial consequences. When mining companies company employees began to explore the reasons for Aboriginal opposition to mining in the 1980s. They discovered that many Aboriginal groups were not opposed to mining itself, but were concerned about the racist and inequitable situation of the past being replicated and consolidated in new ventures. 
It was widely assumed that Aboriginal people were making ambit claims for land and financial returns to which they were not entitled. And many in the mining industry treated Aboriginal objections to mining with contempt. The state governments had dealt with Aboriginal demands in less than constructive ways that further held back the possibility of mining companies and Aboriginal groups talking about the issues constructively. Aboriginal people were opposed to the potential for worsening racial discrimination and abuse that so often accompanied mining projects imposed on them by state governments, such as the Comalco Act achieved in 1957 in Western Cape York. Aboriginal people wanted guaranteed recognition of their inherent rights and entitlements and acceptable terms and conditions for their cultural, social and economic futures. At that time, legislation requir requiring that the mining industry consult with Aboriginal people about mining proposals did not exist in most states and in the Northern Territory where the Aboriginal Land Rights Act had been introduced, the mining provision had not been tested. The mining industry in Western Australia, where there were no Aboriginal rights, was expanding, with the Pilbara mining operations growing and companies exploring for diamonds in the Kimberley and uranium in the Western Desert. Indigenous people feared that their cultural heritage would be destroyed, the environment degraded, and that their rights and interests as traditional owners would be lost as leases were obtained by mining companies. In making their objections, Indigenous people were fulfilling their customary responsibilities to look after country and to protect and promote their cultural integrity and social vitality. Mining companies had long discriminated against Aboriginal people and there was little evidence that companies would provide employment for local Indigenous people. It was the Mabo decision of the High Court on the 3rd of June 1992 that changed this history of conflict. The 20th anniversary of the Mabo decision in the High Court has been celebrated throughout Australian Indigenous communities this year. Mabo's legacy is profound. Though unanticipated at the time, the Mabo decision and the Native Title Act provided a formal place at the table for Aboriginal people. These newly won Native title rights have placed them in a key position in the market economy with companies seeking land access. Aboriginal people have used the right to negotiate provision in the Act to negotiate agreements for access to their land to great advantage, settling many thousands of agreements, many of them with mining companies and other resource extraction companies. There is no right of veto, but a seat at the table. This is where ingenuity and leadership counts. These agreements, such as between the WIC people and Comalco, amount to a bargain between Indigenous peoples and the mining companies, producing income streams, which in the best circumstances could accumulate several billions of dollars for future generations, along with jobs and enterprise development in return for the impacts of mining. By translating the recognition of their native title into tangible economic and social benefits for their communities, native title groups have achieved far higher levels of economic participation and wealth creation through employment and enterprise development. The challenges that lie ahead, however, are complex. If I were to describe them in one phrase, it would be economic empowerment. How do we unlock the economic potential of these mining agreements? In one sentence, it would be to say that if Aboriginal people had access to jobs, 
and communities had access to genuine economic and investment advice and equality in education and training, this would enable Aboriginal people to participate in the market and accumulate wealth. Some Aboriginal assets would be converted to commercial assets with income streams. If this were to come about, there would be no gap, no alarming rates of disadvantage for Aboriginal people across most of the socio-economic indicators. Some thousands of Aboriginal men and women who are working in the mining and other industries have imagined this future for themselves and achieved it. Why not all Aboriginal people? This, a rather large question with many facets, will be addressed in the forthcoming lectures. Thank you. And thank you very much to uh, Professor Marcia Langton for such a stimulating lecture. There is indeed a lot to discuss. Uh, and we're going to now move to uh, a brief time for you in the audience to respond to the many points raised in the lecture. Uh, we invite some questions from you. I very much welcome your questions, in fact. As you can see, there are two microphones at the, at the head of the stage here. And uh, we ask you, if you do have a question, to come forward and uh, fire away. Um, don't be shy. If you've got some thoughts you'd like Marcia to flesh out or you've got some questions that you'd like to follow up, please do so. I was going to fire a question off first of all uh, beforehand just to get the, ball, uh, get the ball rolling. Marcia, you point out in the lecture, interestingly, that the stark difference between the North and the South. Um, by 2040, half of the population of Northern Australia uh, and this is obviously where much of the resource activity is occurring, will be Indigenous in the South. It will remain at 2 to 3%. Are the large numbers of Indigenous people who live in the South, in the cities in the South, able to benefit at all from that resources boom? And if they're not able to do so, if they're not able to access the benefits of native title, for example, how are they to secure a greater measure of uh, economic empowerment and economic engagement? I will deal with that question, Paul, in a coming lecture. I mean, it is the big hanging question. And it is one that many Indigenous groups are addressing. You have, uh, say, for instance, in Kempsey in New South Wales, a small fly-in, fly-out Aboriginal workforce going over to the Pilbara. So there's a, a peak uh, demand and then the workers move to another project. So the, the workforce has to be highly mobile. Mm. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk about that. It's one of the disincentives mm. because people don't have the necessary human and social capital to enable them to be a highly mobile workforce, then, you know, it holds people back. But also you have people going into other industries. I mentioned briefly and... I won't have time to say more about this, but it's, you know, emerged from the latest census that one of the largest uh, employers of in Indigenous people is the health sector. Mm. So that uh, employment rate has grown rapidly in the last decade as well. And, of course, we have uh, increasing human capital in that area with Aboriginal people becoming qualified 
Uh, so it's quite likely, I'd like to see the actual numbers, but it's quite likely that the employment in the health sector is on a par with the employment in mm. the mining industry. Mm. It may be even greater, I don't mm. know, I haven't seen those figures yet. Um, and there are other industries as well. So, um, of course, leaving aside the public service and the um, essential service industries, uh, there's tourism and also, I'd say, the, um, the, the green economy mm. with uh, ranges, um, tourism, uh, eco-services, and, of course, there are the creative industries. OK, on that... Uh Strong and controversial note, we will wrap up the question and answer session. Uh, thank you for all of your questions from the audience. Uh, thank you to Marcia Langton. And it's my privilege right now to invite to the lectern the chairman of the ABC, Mr James Spiegelman AC. Would you please welcome him to the lectern? I acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay my respect to, to their elders past and present and thank you, Auntie Carol, for the welcome earlier this afternoon. Uh, we've had the privilege today of listening to one of Australia's foremost public intellectuals. Professor Marcia Langton has made unbelievably significant contributions over several decades now to the development of our understanding of Indigenous Australians and to the development of policy and activity with respect to the improvement of the, uh, the people that she uh, represents. Uh, we're all the beneficiaries of that, not just uh, Indigenous Australians, but all Australians are the beneficiaries of her activity over many, many decades, or oh, several decades now. Tonight we've had the privilege of her contribution reaching a new level, uh, a new development, and one that I think will be of some significance uh, in the debate that emerges uh, in the future. It is true that the emphasis she has given to the emergence of a, a middle class and the significance of that is a new idea and the structure that she's placed it in uh, will... I'm sure will be very influential in the debate and policy development in the years to come. Uh, one sentence that she delivered resonated very much with me when she said that 50 years ago no one could imagine the emergence of an uh, Indigenous middle class in this country. And may I say, my first involvement in uh, Aboriginal affairs was uh, as a member of uh, the Freedom Ride with Charlie Perkins in 1965. And as we went around... Uh, New South Wales, mainly country towns, though we did have to cross the Queensland border so that we didn't have to pay any tax on petrol, as I remember. But, um, but in 1965, it is quite true. None, nobody participating in that uh, activity uh, imagined anything like what we have today. Uh, Charles Perkins was then the first acknowledged university undergraduate uh, I think some have emerged since then who had not at that stage identified as uh, Indigenous Australians but had done, uh, been in university. But Charles was regarded then as the very first uh, undergraduate in any Australian university who was an Aboriginal. And at the, the theme of the emergence of a middle class, although uh, Professor Langton has uh, concentrated on uh, the resource industries, that theme, in fact, resonates exceptionally well 
with the ABC's uh, wonderful uh, series Redfern Now, which is about halfway through its uh, the programs uh, on ABC television, and because one of the th- themes in I think each of the uh, uh, programs is the interaction between uh, Indigenous Australians who ha- are middle class and their neighbours and uh, other members of their families who have not made that transition. And the tensions that arise in that is one of the themes of that series. So that uh, this is a subject matter whose time has come. It's important because it absolutely represents a celebration of Indigenous achievement so that the debate about, uh, in the context of reconciliation or uh, the debate about the role of Indigenous Australians is not simply about victimisation. That's not to say that there aren't things that don't need uh, change of a significant character, but the concept of achievement uh, on an individual and collective basis of the kind that has been uh, emphasised in today's lecture is uh, is an important theme and one that will, I think, change some of the... Uh, um, the tiredness that one gets in the uh, one feels there is in the general community with uh, debate about indigenous issues uh, if one talks about achievement as well as victimization I think that that will uh, move that debate and make people who have stopped listening listen again so thank you very much for tonight's lecture and it's really set a very solid foundation for the remaining lectures in this series Retrieving past memories was all the rage. There were hypnotists who were advertising that they would sell you a previous existence for $25. You could have more. They were $25 a piece. Memory. For centuries, we've grappled with the concept, dabbled with truth serums and hypnotism, compared it to filing cabinets, motion pictures and flashbulbs. That's All in the Mind with me, Lynn Malcolm, and you can download or stream this program from the RN website.